Being unemployed in the United States is bad for you. It's not just bad for you financially. A lot of research shows that the stress of being unemployed is also bad for your mental, physical, and emotional health. It's bad for your family stability, bad for your ability to survive. It's just bad news, period. Just the thought of being unemployed stresses stresses people out. out. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't like the sound of it either. That's Penn State sociologist Sarah Damask. She studies unemployment. The research shows that laid-off workers are 83% more likely to develop a stress-related condition. 83%. So, along with your pink slip, you could also face a higher risk of stroke, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, depression, or even suicide. But what we don't realize is that lots of people are losing their jobs every month because it's the way our economy is built now. Our economy is predicated on there being a number of people who will lose their job every single month. Companies have figured out that people are one of their most expensive (laughs) costs, right? And so if they can get rid of that cost (laughs) when times are tough, it helps the books look better, Mm. right? But one of the problems for people (laughs) is that just as that social contract is eroding, the safety net from the government has been eroding as well. Mm. And so has left the unemployed in this very vulnerable situation. That's a problem. I'm Bridget Schulte, and this is Better Life Lab. As we look at the future of work and well-being in America, as technology continues to rapidly transform the way we work, one of the big, bold-faced questions is what if, in the future, we actually have less work and more unemployment? Stay with us. I'm Bridget Schulte. This season on Better Life Lab, we're looking at the future of work and well-being in America. Now, I know I may have sounded kind of bleak a moment ago, but my guest today is actually an optimist, Dorian Warren. He's a deep thinker on where humans fit in the future of work and the future of unemployment in America. He's co-president of Community Change. It's a nonprofit founded during the 1960s that advocates to improve conditions in low-income communities. Dorian's CV also includes a PhD in political science from Yale and time as a host on MSNBC. Dorian told me there were two people who've shaped his own fascination with the future of work and well-being in America. The first was his mom. Flying solo, she raised two boys while working as a public school teacher in Chicago. But you might not guess his other primary inspiration. The other place that got me interested in the future of work is Bayard Rustin. Mm. Bayard Rustin, the black gay civil rights organizer who organized the March on Washington in 1963 for jobs and freedom. He was one of Dr. King's lieutenants and was not, because of the time, out as gay as a black gay man Mm. um, that came later in the 80s. The March on Washington is August 1963. But he very interestingly wrote an essay in October, I think, of 1963 reflecting on the importance of the march and the path forward. And in that essay, mm-hmm. he's obsessed with automation because it's, mid, it's, it's early like 60s. It's such a modern obsession, it seems. You know, This is over 50 years ago. 
that he's thinking about this question. And at one point he writes that the, the issue of automation more than racial prejudice will affect Black workers in the future. Hmm. And how do we deal with automation and deindustrialization? So he's thinking about this in 1963. So this is actually not a new topic, yeah. <laughs> even though it feels new. There have been some folks thinking about these issues for a very long time. So, you know, you talk about automation affecting black workers at at a higher rate. You certainly see that through the pandemic where uh, black and brown workers have had higher rates of unemployment and black women in particular. You know, and what we want to talk about today really is this future of work. But what if uh, there is less work in the future? Mm -hmm. What if there are more precarious jobs that are created in the future. So there's more churn and there's more uh, people kind of coming in and out of employment. Where do you see automation and unemployment sort of, where do you see that going in the future of work? Well, to look backwards for a moment before we look forward, I think it's important to point out that since the early 70s, the Black unemployment rate has been consistently double the white unemployment rate. Mm. So Black workers are twice as likely to not have a job than white workers. That's since That's been my entire lifetime, I'll say yeah. it that way. Um, that's over 40 years. And there's the old saying in Black communities, last hired, first fired. Um, and so part of the concern of Bayard Rustin's was, remember, he's writing this essay in 1963. The Civil Rights Act passes in 1964, the mm-hmm. next year, which allows Black workers recourse to racial discrimination for the first time. Yeah. For the first time. <laughs> and so his concern was, okay, now that Black workers will have access to these really good, by the way, union often industrial jobs, think mm-hmm. steel or auto or rubber, um, think the big factory work of the mid-20th century, as soon as Black workers enter or are allowed to enter without discrimination, what happens? Mm-hmm. Deindustrialization. Hmm. The bottom falls out from mass manufacturing because they move to the south or they move across borders to find cheaper labor. So that is what happened at the high moment of the civil rights movement when black workers finally got access to good paying jobs. They left. And went away. And so then you, by the time you get to the 80s, if you think of big cities, I'm from Chicago, which is a good example of this, the manufacturing base just up and left. Hmm. And so high, really high unemployment in the 80s and lots of symptoms of that, including increased crime and urban decay and disinvestment. Hmm. But we have to understand it starts with employment in terms of black workers. Okay, so then let's fast forward to the future and think about, okay, what might be ahead of us in terms of automation, in terms of technological changes, in terms of robots, what will be the jobs and the kinds of work available to people? John Maynard Keynes wrote about this, I think, in the 30s or 40s. Technological unemployment, I think, mm-hmm. is the term he called it. If we have a new norm of, say, 5, 10, maybe 20% unemployment because of technology, what does that mean for social stability, for the right. health of people and communities? There are some big questions we have to answer. And we know from all sorts of research that sadly feels really invisible, that unemployment wreaks havoc on individuals, on their mental and physical health. It's associated with not only higher risk of like cardiovascular disease, but also depression, uh, even higher risk of suicide in a country where we associate our identity and our value so much with work. 
So I guess that's the question. Are we going to see more of that in the future? We'll see more of that in the future, depending on what we do, Mm. Um, because these are all policy choices that we collectively make through our political system to either think about these things ahead of time, as you are, Bridget, um, and then plan for them and enact thoughtful policies Mm -hmm. that can um, serve to create well-being for people and stability for people. Or we can put our heads in the sand and mm. say, oh, no, we don't want to think about the future. We can't, can't deal with that. And then it becomes a crisis, and then we're forced to respond on the back end, which is more costly. But we mm-hmm. know we have the—it's not for lack of ideas. It's not for lack of data on which ideas work best. It is, I think, a question of political will yeah. and policy choices in terms mm-hmm. of how do we want to approach— what we can identify now as potential challenges facing us in the future. You know, and some of that is about the narrative we tell ourselves about work and unemployment and, uh, oh, they lost their job through no fault of their own, so then they deserve unemployment benefits. Like, if you quit your job, you're not likely to get unemployment insurance. And yet, if you do lose your job through no fault of your own, the unemployment insurance system that we have More people are denied benefits than get them. Mm -hmm. The benefits are pretty stingy. (laughs) You know, in other countries, it's 80, 90 percent of your previous salary. Here, you're lucky if you get half. And that's pretty hard to live on, particularly if you're a low-wage worker. And it doesn't last very long. So instead of sort of being bouncy to kind of bounce you to the next position— you can sort of spiral downward. So let's listen together to the story of Kiarika Shields. Uh, She's a hospice nurse who lost her job at the start of the pandemic. She lives in Georgia, a single mom of four kids. One of my clients' kids were like, did you try for unemployment? Because at this point, you're out of a job. You should be able to get unemployment. So then I probably applied for it about April 2020. I fired every week like I was supposed to. And then I finally got unemployment around the middle of May. Mm-hmm. So that helped a little. I had savings and things like that. And my rent wasn't that much. I had a car note at the time. Mm-hmm. I had my rent. We ended up moving during that time period because I was thinking if I'm closer to family, maybe I can get back to work because unemployment <laughs> wasn't helping. <laughs> so I was like, I started to get behind on my rent, behind on my car note, trying to, you know, be able to make sure the kids were in a good space to go to work. And it was really, all of it was putting me behind. Um, and then on top of that, my unemployment stopped. And it out of nowhere. Wow. Why did it stop? Unemployment has been very tricky. Uh was out of work and it was time for me to recertify my unemployment. So I was, I followed these unemployment groups and they were telling me at my benefit year end date to reapply. I reapplied and my job um, filed an appeal and then I won that appeal and it still has, it never started back. They keep telling me to continue to file. And once the appeal go through, I should hear something back. I won the appeal, so I'm thinking, okay, my funds are going to start back. So the guy calls me, and he says, they're going off the last job that I held. Mm -hmm. I told you I do little odd jobs. I barely worked one day. I was going to be their recruiter Mm -hmm. at a staffing company. Um, I did that for one day, but I quickly realized it wasn't for me because I would have to bring 
work home on the weekends. Plus dealing with four kids alone, I was like, yeah, I don't think this will work. So that was my last place of employment to them, to unemployment. So that's what they brought up when they called me back. And they said, I didn't make anything with them, so I no longer qualify. So I just completely washed my hands with unemployment. So, Dorian, here's Kiarka. It worked mm. for years, saved money, did everything right, went to college, hospice nurse, loved that job. Mm. The pandemic comes, uh, she's furloughed, then loses the job, and then she's got four young kids she can't leave alone, she can't find childcare. Unemployment doesn't cover enough to pay for child care. She's far from family. So so un, the unemployment system really did not work for her. Listening to her story, um, it, if you're not feeling a range of emotions, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to listen again because um, I'm part angry um, for her, but also feeling incredibly empathetic because... I have many people in my family who have very similar stories. Mm. And I talk to folks in communities around the country all the time who are facing similar stories, which tells you that our system is broken or, you know, maybe to push the point further, that our system actually wasn't designed to value human dignity and flourishing. Mm. Um, I think about our unemployment system in this country, it is almost a century old. It was created in a radically different time in terms of the structure of our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in a very different economy than an industrial economy with a 40-hour work week, right, and regular schedules. And so we need to be really, really thoughtful, intentional around the big question of how would we redesign an unemployment insurance or a social insurance program today mm-hmm. that takes into account the deep pain and trauma and harm that too many millions of people have been living with the last couple of years of this pandemic mm-hmm. um, and trying to access unemployment insurance. I had a, um, actually I had a close friend who lived with me for three months in the early days of the pandemic. He's a dancer in New York mm. um, and could not pay his bills. Like all the work dried up. Right. And I remember him in my apartment on the phone with the New York state unemployment insurance system for hours, mm. hours mm-hmm. trying to you know get his claim through. Um, and that's just unnecessary in terms of the burdens that are in the system that make it difficult for people. It's designed that way. We can redesign the entire system so that the, the cases of Kiara Shields isn't the norm, but is the mm. exception to the norm because her story is very much the norm. And honestly, her story and the story of millions more like her end up costing us more collectively as a country mm-hmm. in terms of the bad health outcomes, <laughs> you know, just alone, then it would cost us if we invested in a well-designed system on the front end that allowed people some relief and to get back on their feet. That's Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change. Coming up, we'll hear a story from Phoenix of unemployment done right. Stay with us. I'm Bridget Schulte. You're listening to Better Life Lab. My guest is Dorian Warren, co-president of Community Change. His organization's goal is to dramatically improve conditions for people who struggle to make ends meet in the United States, with a particular focus on people of color, 
and women. To arrive at a strategy to fix the outmoded way America deals with unemployment, Dorian says it's important to understand the deeply ingrained roots of our current flawed system. Okay, where did American economic and social policy come from? Well, a lot of it was exported from Great Britain. Mm -hmm. And if we do go back historically a couple of hundred years, you know, the United Kingdom criminalized the poor, criminalized poverty. There were poor laws, which basically made it a crime to be poor. And we... (laughs) Or unemployed, right? And um, to be poor and unemployed. Um, There were vagrancy laws. You know, you couldn't be um, on a street corner without anything to do, that that was a, you would be locked up. It was punitive. Mm -hmm. We imported that in America. And we've always thought less of the poor and the unemployed. Mm -hmm. We have often enacted punitive policies to punish people Mm -hmm. when they are unemployed through no fault of their own. I think there's a comedian that often likes to say, I'm not in poverty, I'm broke right now. But lots of people are broke for a long time, right? Because that is how we have designed the system. Um, Frankly, workers didn't have the rights that um, we all take for granted now until the mid-30s, until the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, which allowed in the private sector workers the right to organize into unions to -hmm. improve working conditions without retaliation or punitive measures from their employers. That didn't exist from, say, 1776 or 1789, it didn't exist until 1935. Wow. So it's actually a really recent wow. thing. And even that system is broken today, any labor labor scholar would tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, at the core of our employment, labor, and social insurance laws in this country, mm-hmm. we have always thought that those people are somehow not like us. And of course, there is a racialized and gender dimension to this. If you think back to the 30s again, Social Security, minimum wage, the National Labor Relations Act, we designed collectively a system that excluded certain groups of workers, domestic workers and agricultural workers. Who were those folks? They were black workers in the South. Exactly. We explicitly, like you could just look at the text of the laws, Social Security Act of 1935, National Labor Relations Act of 1935, Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Mm -hmm. It's in the law. We excluded whole categories of people because of who they were, what they looked like, and the kind of work they were doing. Mm. And we, it is way past time. It is way past time that we redesign and rewrite those laws to make sure they're fully inclusive. We need a new vision of reimagining what are the fundamental rights, just as a human being in this country, that everyone deserves. Mm -hmm. Um, And turning the page on the punitive nature in which we have approached people who are hard on their luck. So, Dorian, you talk about you know, sort of at at heart, what are the sort of the basic expectations for human beings? What about yes. not only the yes. you know we're talking about the future of work and well being, and part of well being is having time outside of work for true quality of life and true true time for leisure. Can you talk a little bit more about that idea and who gets to have leisure? There was an old labor movement saying back in the 1800s when there was a pretty ferocious and often bloody and violent fight for the eight-hour workday mm-hmm. by workers organizing to unions and the labor movement was at the, the lead of this, right, to get to a 40-hour work week. And the saying was something like eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours to do what you will, mm-hmm. or eight hours for leisure, mm-hmm. eight hours for play. And 
we've lost that in a sense, that sense of work-life balance, I guess is the way we talk about it now. And we think that that's so silly. We think it's silly and often, you know, as a new parent, like, most of my time outside of work, I'm still doing a kind of labor. Mm-hmm. I'm doing care labor. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> I am playing with my kid. But that's also labor, too. Right. And how do we re-envision sort of what the good life should be? I'm, I'm struck by Heather McGee's recent book, The Sum of Us, where mm. she, she basically asked the question, like, why can't we all have nice things? Mm. Mm-hmm. Why are nice things and public goods exclusionary mm. to only certain people who we deem to be more deserving? And who gets to decide mm-hmm. who is more deserving? Who gets to decide who is deserving of leisure? Um, and, and, and the problem with it, the notion that, you know, people should be working 50, 60, 80 hours a week because that is the Protestant work ethic that's been at the heart of this country as well is absurd from a social scientific basis. Mm-hmm. Problem is it ignores all the science. Mm-hmm. Every day there's a new study out that shows that people who have time for leisure and self-fulfillment actually flourish more Mm. and better at the workplace. Mm -hmm. I've recently been seeing, and I'm sure you have too, some experiments with four-day work weeks. Right, yeah. um, That's very interesting in terms of the assumption is like, oh, if you give people a four-day work week, maybe longer hours during those four days— but that somehow they won't be as productive. It's it's not true. Right. It's not true. Um, or to give you another data point. And, um, and to actually, back- some of the research, it's not four days of longer hours. It's actually oh, four yes. days. It's 32 hours that you can be as productive as five days at 40. Uh, That's right. But most of those studies are in office settings, and a lot of it is because they've reimagined meetings. (laughs) Uh, Yes, all of us suffer with meeting culture. So there is, you know, one of the one of the worries that I have about the short work hours movement because I I do think that that is the right way to go. But how do we have a short work hours movement when we have so many people who are working involuntary part-time, can't get yes. enough hours to get health insurance? So yes, I think that right. if we're going to be talking about leisure and a short work hours movement, we need to figure out how to make it available to everybody and not yes. just a bunch of tech bros in offices. That's right. That's right. You know, I think if billionaires can go to space, certainly we can figure out how to redesign work. So that everybody has access to good work, to meaningful work, to well-paid work, as well as the leisure time that everyone deserves. Mm -hmm. We can figure this out. This is not for lack of imagination. It's just that some folks benefit from the current system as it's designed versus others. And the vast majority of folks in this country are not benefiting Mm -hmm. from how we've designed our economy. So... We can re, we can redesign it in a way in which um, it's not zero sum, in which everybody can benefit and live a good life of flourishing and well being. We can do that if we want it to. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how do we think about bending political will and and motivating people to say, you know what? Actually, yeah, we all kind of deserve good things, mm-hmm. and we can do really good work. And have time outside of work to ourselves and our families and our communities and make sure that we're healthy, Yeah, that we're healthy, that we're showing up to work in a place where people are motivated and feel good about what they're doing. And sometimes to reimagine, you need a bright spot. You need to see how it's been done before. And actually, I'd like to share the story of Mark Attico with you next. Um, Mark, he worked in business travel 
Uh, and mm. not surprisingly, the start of the pandemic, he was furloughed. And so mm. he was on unemployment. But the difference is, uh, even though this should have worked for Kiarica, uh, the difference for Mark is that he was able to get benefits. Uh, it also gave him time to reconnect with his son. I was working as a travel agent, um, small office in downtown Phoenix, you know, Monday through Friday, standard eight to five gig, pandemic hit. They initially sent us to work from home, and that lasted for maybe like three or four days uh, before <laughs> they went ahead and uh, you know made the rounds and said, we are going to be furloughing most of the company. So I was able to get in kind of on the early side, you know, submitted my paperwork for unemployment. I think at the beginning, it was an extra $600 a week or whatever, probably within a month or so started getting the you know the regular deposits. Did they ever open back up again or have they opened up again? Corporate travel, um, which has been slower to come back to a lot larger degree than leisure travel. So they ran with a skeleton crew. The company I worked for was a you know major corporation with offices all over the place. And I think they let go all but three people in our office and, and eventually ended up you know just closing it entirely. It was really like, there's not much I can do with this. You know, you know, I'm not probably not really going to be able to find anything. I think I, you know, kind of looked for a few things, but there were, you know, were no jobs in travel. Um, you get, you know, get a job, maybe a clerk at, at the grocery store making 13, you know, 12, $13 an hour with the expanded unemployment amount. I was able to just be like, I have enough to pay my bills and everything. My expenses have actually gone down a bit because I was able to get my car loan, you know, kind of paused for a few months. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't going any, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. So, right. What was your relationship like with your son before you you were laid off, and sure. and then how did that change during the period where you did have more time yeah, um, sure. while you were unemployed? Sure. So, and been a pretty you know hands on parent, you know, back when he was a baby, you know, getting up at night to change diapers and the whole nine yards. So I was always, you know, pretty involved in his life. Uh, but when he hit that middle school, junior high thing, we, we definitely hit a bump, had a, had a you know, pretty rough patch. You know, his mom lives a fair, fair distance away. So, like, I didn't have nearly the relationship that I wanted to have with them for a good couple of years prior to the pandemic, you know, just because you don't have that flexibility. So, Mark, when you when you said that you didn't have the relationship that you wanted to have, how did, how did you feel about that? Oh, it sucks. I hated it. My job in the travel industry, I'd been doing that for a while and it was fine, but it's not like I was super passionate about like, oh, this is my big, important career. It's just, you know, it's a job. It helps me keep my hobbies of sleeping indoors and eating three meals a day or whatever. So (laughs) yeah, the survival hobbies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my passion has always really been, you know, really wanting to have that relationship with my son and everything. It was so being yeah. at home, you know, initially when I was on the unemployment and then after, you know, when I did eventually get a job and was able to work from home, it gave me a lot more flexibility. He was able to be here a lot more. I was able to participate and do more of the stuff that I wanted to do as a parent, as a dad. And even just having that unscheduled time where like, I don't have a 45-minute commute home after school. You know, like, I can sign out of work and walk out and, hey, bud, let's go hang out. Let's go practice yeah. driving. Let's do whatever. So having that unstructured time with them, 
during an employment, it really allowed me to be more of the parent and rebuild that connection that I always wanted and really missed. I was home, I could actually make sure that he's doing his schoolwork and, and participating to whatever degree is possible. Because um, you know, his mom works in a doctor's office, so she was considered an essential worker. She had to keep going to work, and she even eventually got, you know, she did get COVID a few months after. And fortunately, didn't have a real bad case. She didn't have to, you know, be hospitalized or anything like that. But actually, you know, allowed me to provide for him, you know, financially and emotionally and everything. Because it gave me the space to do more of kind of the parenting work that I wanted to do. So, Dorian, is this an example of how we might be able to do unemployment right in the future? 100%. <laughs> I mean, this is this is exactly the kind of stories that we should center as we're redesigning our system. It made me think of, Bridget, just the investment in children mm-hmm. as one dimension of this and how that pays off. It's sort of a win-win for everybody. You have happier parents. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure Mark was much happier. You can yeah. hear it in his voice. Mm-hmm. You can hear it. I think the kid is probably happier. And when you have investment in the care work of raising children and you have happier parents and happier kids, you actually have better life outcomes yeah. for those kids, which who then go on to contribute to the public good and not cost something on the back end, right? It's like one tweak, like one thing around unemployment insurance, which broadly we can say that's what social insurance is supposed to be. That's Mm -hmm. the whole notion of a social safety net. It's that one tweak, right? His ability to not have to be stressed Mm. about work or finding work for a period of time, and then he could reinvest that time in the well-being of his child, wow, that is exactly how the system should be working. Yeah, And, you know, it made me also think, one of the things we keep seeing is that folks that have some kind of a basic income floor, Mm -hmm. whatever the source is, they're actually more likely to be employed. Yeah. Like six months later. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because guess what? They actually have time. They don't have the stress of like hustling to pay a bill. Mm -hmm. They actually have time to work on their resume and update it, Mm -hmm. to actually apply for jobs, to actually go on interviews, to act to do all the things that we claim we want people to do, but Mm -hmm. don't provide any support Mm -hmm. for them to do it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that I'm thinking about some of the, the behavioral science research that looks at scarcity. And finding that when you're in that state of scarcity, whether it's time scarcity or financial scarcity, that you just, it's like your, your brain collapses. You get, you know, you, you cease being able to see the bigger picture because you're so worried about what comes next. So it's not that you're making bad choices. It's that you are in such a high state of stress and scarcity. You simply don't have the capacity to make those kinds of decisions. You know, so I guess that's the, you know, hearing Mark's story where he wasn't in that state of scarcity or stress. He was able to, like, make the most of his time and find a good job. I just talked to him the other day. You know, it's been, the job was comparable, you know, benefits, pay, pretty much the same. He's been happy. Mm. He's connected to his son. They go for long walks with the dog. You know, it's like, here's a story where he bounced upward. Yes. Um, Does that give you hope for the future? It gives me so much hope for the future. And can we imagine, can we close our eyes and just think about millions of people bouncing upward mm, to the collective that. benefit of all of us? That is, that is achievable, but we have to do the work to make it possible. 
Dorian Warren. He's co-president of Community Change and has worked on racial, economic, and social justice issues for over two decades. Earlier this episode, we heard the voices of former hospice nurse Kiarka Shields in Georgia and of former business travel agent Mark Attico in Arizona. And at the top of the show, we heard briefly from Sarah Damask. She's a sociologist at Penn State University and author of The Tolls of Uncertainty. This season on Better Life Lab, we're looking at the future of work and well-being in America. We'll close out this season next time with an episode, Imagining a Different Kind of Progress. My guests will include Representative Jim Himes of Connecticut. He chairs the House Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness and Growth. Lincoln said it. Public sentiment is everything. And public sentiment is very, very much on the side of doing better by our most marginalized people. We've got work to do. I hope you'll join us next time on Better Life Lab. For more resources on fairer, healthier work, go to newamerica.org. Click the link for Better Life Lab. On behalf of myself and my producer, David Shulman, many thanks for joining us for our new season. Please review us on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Better Life Lab is produced by New America in partnership with Slate. Special thanks to Alicia Montgomery at Slate for all her work with us. Our podcast is sponsored by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which is committed to improving health and health equity in the United States. In partnership with others, RWJF is working to develop a culture of health rooted in equity that provides every individual with a fair and just opportunity to thrive, no matter who they are, where they live, or how much money they have. For more information, visit www.rwjf.org. For Better Life Lab, I'm Bridget Schulte.